I love that last song because it speaks of ruins that seem dead and then Jesus can bring them back to life. And so today we're going to talk about that a little bit. And over the next couple of weeks, we're going to talk about how to take off bad behavior and put on the new behavior of the new self. One of the issues that people have when they approach the Bible is they have a hard time reconciling the violence in the Old Testament with the loving God that they hear about or read in the New Testament. And they think to themselves, well, how can this be a loving God that would command his people to go out and slaughter other people? For example, in Jeremiah 6, when Israel came against the Canaanites, he gave Joshua an order to do that. And you can't mistake the order in Joshua 6 because it's quite obvious. And Joshua obeyed that order. Then they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, donkeys, with the edge of the sword. And you look at this and say, well, wait a minute. That doesn't really seem like a loving God. Men, women, young and old. And so what gives? And people have their various nuanced answers and they can explain it away. But really what God was doing was protecting his people from the sin of people like the Canaanites. It was a protection. It was to keep them pure. Other places in Scripture, we see where Israel fails to do the things that God commands them to do, and they intermarry or they mix up themselves with the Canaanites, for example. And the book of Second Kings tells us that the kings were practicing gross immorality. They were worshiping other gods. And the prophet Jeremiah said they were even killing the prophets. And so all that violence, which seems to us to be so out of line with a loving God, is actually God's answer to sin. God is deathly serious about sin. Because he knows that it will destroy the people that he loves. It will destroy the mission that he set us out to do. And so today, the Apostle Paul, in his letter to Colossae, will tell us, listen, you've got to deal with sin. You have got to take it seriously, because if you don't, it will destroy you. So you've got to eradicate it. You've got to identify it. You've got to kill sin before it kills you. And so let's take a look at the text this morning. This isn't necessarily one of those passages that you would choose in a topical series, but I love it because we deal with the full counsel of God. So turn to Colossians 3, beginning in verse 5. Colossians 3, beginning in verse 5. That's page 984 if you want to grab that Bible in the seat back in front of you. You can also use the Ridgewood app. Just download that and follow along the study notes. And for you that are following on live stream this morning, I invite you to take your Bibles as well. And open to this passage, Colossians 3, 5 through 9. So we're learning how to walk together for Christ. And what Paul has been doing with this spiritually young but growing congregation is helping them understand how to live the Christian life. And so he spent the first part of the letter in refutation to false teachers explaining the proper doctrine of Christ. 
Because these false teachers were asserting that Jesus wasn't sufficient for salvation. And Paul said, no, no, no. Jesus is magnificent. His majesty is amazing. So now he's finished with the doctrine of Christ and he's moving into practical living. He's taking that knowledge now that we have about who Jesus is and connecting it to how we live our lives. So today he's going to talk about what behaviors, if we want to follow Christ, to take off. And next week we'll talk about what behaviors to put on as we grow in our relationship with Jesus. And so today it's this metaphor of clothing. What are we to take off in order to live the Christian life? And he'll deal with personal sins. He'll deal with sins against others. And then toward the end of the passage, he'll tell us exactly why we need to do this. So let's take a look at the text together. He lists sins here. It's not an exhaustive list, but it's enough to get us to understand that it will kill us if we don't deal with it. So beginning in verse 5. Put to death, therefore... What is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry? Verse 6, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another. Seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. We are taking these practices off. We are new in Christ. Paul knows that Satan is lurking. He knows that sin can put us in bondage. And I want you to be free this morning. I want you to have victory over sin. And if you don't know Jesus, I want you to come to know him and his saving power. But what Paul is really saying here in his first point that we're going to deal with as the overarching theme is that we need to kill sin now, not tomorrow, not on our deathbed, now. There's too much at stake to mess around with it. And this list isn't meant to be judgmental. It's not meant to be a to-do, you know, Baptist to-do list. You know, don't play cards, don't gamble, don't dance. That's not what this is about. It's about keeping us free from the practices that will destroy our lives, that will destroy the witness of Christ, that will stop our church from moving forward into the future so that we can have more than 38 lanterns here. That's what this is about. So we need to take it seriously. And I want you to perk up and I want you to listen because there's a lot at stake here. And as I read through this list, I know at least a few of them applied to me. And so I'm sure they'll apply to you as well. Now, just to make clear, the old self, as Paul would refer to it, and you're probably wondering about this, was actually crucified with Christ. In Romans 6, 6, we see that we are no longer slaves to sin. So positionally, we are justified. Our sin has been atoned for through the work of Christ on the cross if we are followers of Jesus. So our salvation, if we're followers of Christ, is not at issue. It is for someone who hasn't followed Christ, and sin will delude that walk toward Jesus. But for those who follow Christ, we're not talking about salvation here. 
We're talking about how sin can destroy our temporal lives, can hurt our witness, and can hurt those around us. That's what Paul is talking about. It's about sanctification. Sin is this, even though our old self has been put away, sin is this tempter that keeps coming around. It's like when you break off a friendship because, you know, this friend wants you to do unhealthy things. So you finally say, no, I'm done with that. I'm moving into a new life. And that friend keeps calling. Come on. Come on. Come with me. We're going to do this. Let's go back and do that. And it's this constant thing to go back. That's what sin is like. We have been made new, but sin is always knocking at the door. The Bible says it prowls. Satan prowls like a roaring lion, ready to devour its prey. And the Greek tense here denotes decisive action. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Don't wait. Don't mess around. Kill it before it kills you. Kill it before it kills other people around you. The book of James gives us a dire illustration of what happens if we flirt with sin. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil. And he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. This is literally a life and death proposition. And so I'm thankful, even though it's hard to preach through lists, in the Bible, I wish that, you know, hey, Paul, can you stop with all of them? Because, you know, it takes time to move through this. I'm thankful that God took the time through his inspired word to help us understand the depth and gravity of sin so that we can be free from it. And, and, and the thing that struck me, too, as I was moving through all of this sin we're going to talk about in a minute, is that Christ took all of this upon himself as he died on the cross. And some of this stuff is really gross. It's disgusting. We don't talk about it. But Christ bore it all and saved us by his blood. That's a beautiful Savior. We can be thankful for that. And so what we're going to do first is just breeze through this list of personal sins. We are to kill personal sins. Personal sins meaning these are sins between the person and God, between us and God. But it doesn't mean it doesn't have an adverse effect on those around you. Obviously, if you're living in sin, it's going to hurt people around you. But this is in the personal sins category. And again, this is earthly. Literally, the members that are upon the earth. And it runs in contrast to Colossians 3.1 when Paul said, seek the things above where Christ is. These sins are all earthly. We are to have our eyes toward Christ in the heavenlies. Living out our new lives in Christ. And he begins with one that we would probably find obvious in our day. Sexual immorality. That's all sexual activity outside of marriage. All sexual activity outside of marriage. The root word here is pornea. From where we get the word pornography. But it has a general meaning of all sex that is done outside of the bond of marriage between a man and a woman. The Gentiles in this time were rapidly sexually immoral. So Paul is saying, don't follow that lead. 
Live your lives within the marriage context. And I think it's important to understand that God gave sex as a gift to us to be lived out in a marriage relationship to give us just a small glimpse of the deep love that Christ has for the church. That Christ has for you. And it all starts in the Trinity. You have the Father, you have the Son, you have the Holy Spirit. And they're interacting in a way that we can't even imagine the intimacy that's in that union. Sex helps us just get a glimpse and taste of that. So we don't want to take sex outside of the bond of marriage because it cheapens it and we lose its original intent. And God is saying, no, that's not what I have for you. It's not what I want for you. So he begins with sexual immorality. It'll kill you if you let it go on. And then closely related to that is impurity. And that goes beyond the act and into the mind. It's what's going on up here now. It's not just the outward act. And we know when when Jesus introduced his kingdom that that his kingdom was so different than the, the Pharisaical kingdom. Because the Pharisees were all about the outward act. Don't do this. Don't do that. You know, Sabbath, you can't do this. You can't do that. No, Jesus was all about what's going on inside. He saw that as just as important as what's coming out on the outside. Jesus' kingdom is about the heart. In Matthew 5, 28, he says, Every man that looks at a woman and lusts after her has already committed adultery. So, we don't have the luxury of dwelling on evil and impurity and not acting it out and calling it good. Because that's sin. Jesus is looking at that. He wants all of us. He wants our mind, our body, our soul. And so impurity is important to pay attention to. And then Paul moves through these deepening ideas of passion and evil desire. That's sexual lust. Passion is the physical aspect And desire denotes the act of the mind. So passion, physical, that should just say really desire denotes an action of the mind. And so again, we see that God is calling for all of us. And these words are used together in 1 Thessalonians 4, 5 when he commands believers to not live in lustful passions. And then this all comes together as Paul sums it up with the outcome, and that's covetedness, which is idolatry, and that refers to greed, which is an insatiable desire for more. So it only goes to reason that if we're caught up in passion and lust and sexual immorality, that we're going to pursue things that are outside of God's will and we're going to make them idols, and we will become likely the idol. And we will destroy other people in the process when we're just thinking about us. And that's idolatry. It's anything that's outside of a passion for God. Wendy read part of this passage, Ephesians 5, 3 through 5. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetedness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor cruel joking which are out of place. But instead... Let there be thanksgiving, for you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous 
that is, an idolater has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Those are, those are hard words. Has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. So Paul's telling us, listen, those behaviors and your new self, your Christian life, they don't go together at all. It doesn't mean that you can lose your salvation because you sin. What it does mean, though, if you don't follow Christ, then these sins can keep you away from Jesus and you'll find eternity in hell or heaven. And yours will be hell because you haven't come to know Christ. So the first list is personal sins. Now he moves on to social sins. And these are sins against others. And this is where the church can be widely affected by some of these behaviors. If you look again at 7 through 9. In these you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Don't lie to another. Seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. So these are sins against, specifically in this context, God's children, your fellow believers. But you can easily widen this out to be sins against all of those that God has created in his image. God has created each man, woman, and child specially in his image. And to, to sin against them is to sin against God. And we're going to see exactly what that looks like. And he begins with a common one that many of us struggle with, and that's anger. In this particular context, it's sudden outbursts of anger. It's like a flame that lights and then is gone. It's that uncontrollable rage that happens where we feel like we're out of control. In Luke, it's re, it refers to the sudden outbursts in the temple when Jesus would teach and there would be rage and anger. And then in Acts, it's referred to as the, the craftsmen that were coming against Paul and that anger at what he was teaching. And so we know that God has given us the fruit of the spirit when we become believers. And this would run contrary to self-control. Anger. Now, it's also important to point out that anger is not necessarily sin. God is angry at sin. God is angry at injustice. But it is the uncontrollable anger that we're talking about here. And that is many times fueled by the next sin on the list that we are to take off and kill, and that's malice. And it denotes a general form of moral evil. Paul is likely here referring, though this word has a wide context, to the root of anger. And this is a killer because it leads to so many other things. When we're brewing inside, when we've got that simmering malice, hatred, hurt, then it likely will become a flame that explodes and really does harm. Paul is saying, man, don't do this. Because this isn't you. You've you got you to take off your 
old practices and put on the new. Take this stuff off. This isn't what a Christ follower does. And then, where does it all end up? Usually, it ends up in slander, which is blasphemy against people, and that amounts to blasphemy against God. The Greek here is blasphemia, which is blasphemy against people, which amounts to blasphemy against God. And that's something that we have to take so seriously. When, when people criticize your children or are unkind to your children, how do you feel? It makes you angry, doesn't it? It hurts. God, you are His children. And when we slander one another, we are slandering God because we are created in His image and we are His children. This is the outcome of malice. When we have that hatred brewing in us or that discontent, it will come out in the tongue. And I think there's part of this that happens too is we don't know how to to, to disagree with each other. But God has given us a pathway regarding how to disagree. And it's found in Matthew 18. And this is just a part of it. If your brother sins against you, Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. It's not go tell your prayer group. It's not, you know, tell your friends at coffee. Tell your accountability. No. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. One on one. And then, of course, the passage, if you read it through, expands to, if he doesn't listen to you, bring another witnesses, and then it expands out to telling the church. But this is the first step. And if we do that, there'd be far less gossip and slander going on around us. Slander is incredibly destructive. And it destroys churches far more than sexual immorality does. And when I was doing my, my, my doctoral work and surveying those thousand churches, man, it was all about Christ's leadership. All of these churches were torn apart. Vast majority, not by sexual immorality, but by slander, gossip, misunderstandings, all of it. And the one thing I think that we need to not do and stay away from, and I've noticed an uptick on this in our church of late, is anonymous criticisms. Anonymous criticisms. Sometimes, you know, I'll, I'll find them in the boxes in the back or they'll show up in the offering plate or sometimes, sadly, even in a volunteer box, somebody who's just volunteering and they're getting these anonymous criticisms. And the problem with that is you can't work out Matthew 18. In other words, I can't, when I get an anonymous criticism, you know, I don't like this, I can't call the person up or say, let's have a meeting. Let's talk this through. Let me explain this to you. And it's left hanging. And I think that's a form of slander because there's no way to work it out biblically. It'd be, it'd be like this. If you, if you walked out onto your, on your front steps one morning and there was a note on your door and it said, your car that's sitting in your driveway is ruining our neighborhood. 
Now, that could be meek. I have a 99 Suburban sitting out there. I'm sure the neighbors really appreciate that. It doesn't really fit well with the boats that are lined up, you know, across the thing. But so what the first thing you would do is, at least I would do, is you kind of walk out, you look up and down the street, and you'd be wondering who, who left that and why. And you don't have the opportunity to go to them and say, well, let me just explain. You know, I have plans, you know, to get another car. And I'm sorry, you know, maybe we can work something out. You don't have a chance to explain. And then the the worst thing that happens with these anonymous complaints is it plants distrust. Because everyone you talk to on your street, you're going to be wondering one thing in the back of your mind. Did you leave that note? Was it you? So I've just learned to tear them up and throw them away. I've instructed staff to do that too because it just isn't a good way to communicate. And when, when we, we're talking about loving each other well, then the idea of one-on-one conversations is paramount. And I know, I know for me, it's really hard to do one-on-ones that are you know, confrontative because I'm not generally looking for confrontation. But sometimes you have to, and that's the biblical way to do it. We don't want to be slandering one another. And then this destructive nature of social sins leads to the climax here of obscene talk and lying. And they're rooted in the character of Satan. If we're off the rails, this is the kind of the behavior we're going to see. In Ephesians 5, 4, again, just that one portion of it. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. Is our mouth being used as a weapon? Is it being used as a crude instrument? Or is it being used as something that is healing and encouraging and thankful and full of gratitude? Because that kind of thing, Satan is all over. If we look at lying, look at John 8.44. This is all about Satan's character. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Paul says after all of this, obscene talk, lying, no. No. Truth-telling is big in a church and in our lives. Not mean truth-telling. You understand that, right? Do you like my shoes? No, those are terrible. Where'd you buy those? No, that's not what I'm saying, all right? But what I am saying is if, you, if somebody says, have I done something? Then you, you have the obligation to say, you know, yeah. And I've learned in my own life, and this goes to my, my relationship with Wendy, if I say the words, no, everything's fine, then I have lied if it's not, and I have to live with the consequences of that. So this is so important. Personal sin, social sin. Now here's the reasons. If you look at verse 6 again, Paul's going to warn us about something and why we need to keep, keep this on the front of our minds even beyond just the relational damage. Verse 6, On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. And then in the second half of verse 9, Seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. So first... The wrath of God is coming. So don't be living like this. The wrath of God is against sin. Israel went out as an instrument of God. 
He needed to keep Israel pure. And so, yes, it's horrible. The violence is, 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 is unimaginable, but there, this is how God feels about sin. Don't get in the way of that. Get right with God. Come to Jesus. Confess your sin. And then secondly, don't do that because that's not who you are anymore. You're not, you're not that person back here anymore. You're not the old self. You need to just come and live as God has called you to live. Now, that, all that sounds really great. And I know what some of you are thinking. You're thinking, but how? I, I have been trying so hard. And I keep failing. How? Well, here are some things that we can work through together. And I hope this will help. The how. First, we kill sin by admitting that we are being killed by it. In other words, we kill sin by admitting that we have a problem. And where sometimes we go wrong is we don't see the sin in ourselves. In AA, I know the, the first of the 12 steps is we admitted we were powerless over alcohol and that we could not manage our lives with alcohol. That's admitting that we have a problem. If we don't admit that we have a sin problem, then John 1.10 would say, if we say we've not sinned, we make him a liar and the word is not in us. So stop blaming everybody else for your sin. Stop blaming God and take responsibility for it. That's the first step. And then after that, the second step would be we kill sin by confessing it immediately. You confess it. You tell God that you're sorry. And then 1 John 1.9 tells us that when we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And we have this notion that somehow we don't really want to confess that, but God sees it anyway. How foolish is that? And here's what I would recommend when you're, when you're doing your prayer time, when you're with God and it comes time for confession, don't just say, God, just forgive me for my sins. Take a few minutes. Think through. Now, some mornings for me, it's like obvious. I got a list of ten. Like, bam, 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 bam. And, you know, I'm out of time. Some days, I've got to really stop and let God penetrate my heart and soul to show me where I might be. And sometimes it can be a really subtle nuance. But I think it's important to name the sin because you bring it into the light. And sometimes it's hard to name the sin because it's shameful and it's gross. But when we name the sin, there's a freedom in that. And then we trust this verse, that we are clean and forgiven. And we can live in freedom because of the blood of Christ. And then we can kill sin by being accountable for it. So you confess it, and then you help people you find people that will help you be accountable to not keep doing that sin. This is why we're always pushing community groups. This is why we're pushing getting into relationships with people. Not just that ask you questions that you answer once a week, but that actually watch you live. Watch you interact with your wife and your children and your husband and can say, you know, I just, can we talk about something that I just saw? Or a pattern that I see. Or you can just encourage like crazy. Well, you're a great mom. I can't believe how patient you are with that kid. But that happens in a relationship. And then 
I think the final thing is really biblical. We kill sin by submitting to God. In James 4, 7, we see that we submit. The Bible says, submit yourselves to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. The first is submission, humbling yourself, inviting God in. Now, here's what I want to say about all this. This is a hard, hard journey for a lot of people, including me. There are days where you feel totally defeated. Where you're you're confessing this sin and it's coming out of your mouth and you're going like, I've been here a thousand times before. And then then our, our next thought is, well, then there's no way I can be forgiven again. But the truth of the matter is, number one, that we are forgiven. And the other truth is we're probably making more progress than we think we are. And so... What I want to encourage you this morning is that if you're really struggling, if you're really struggling to move forward and there's something that's really got you in chains, then I want to encourage you. That doesn't mean you're not a Christian. It doesn't mean that Jesus doesn't love you. It just means you're struggling. And so when you bring somebody into that, when when you ask people to pray for you, then you can find brothers and sisters that will come around you and walk you through that. But please, don't think that there's something that you're, that you're less or that God can't love you through that. God does deal with sin. He takes it really seriously. We see that in the case of Israel. But he, he takes it seriously because he loves you as a shepherd loves his sheep. And he does not want sin to destroy you. And so I just want to take a moment And I just want you to have a moment to reflect with God. Maybe it was something on that list today that caught your attention and you went, yeah, that's me. Or maybe there's something else that's mulling through your mind. Or maybe there's something that you're saying, I don't know about Jesus. I've I've never come to this. Will you just take a moment in silence and bow your heads? And I'll give you a moment just to do business with God. And then I'll close. Father, I thank you for the the power that's available to us through Christ who lives in us, who has overcome the world. And I thank you for redemption. I thank you that we can look sin in the eye and we can ask to be forgiven and repent and we can be saved because Jesus has paid for that sin on the cross with his precious blood. And so, God, I pray that we would all look sin in the eye and just deal with it and not walk in shame and, and not walk as somebody who's not good enough or as good as the person sitting next to us so that we can walk in freedom and new life and put on the new self. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.